Last week, we kicked off the new year with a new sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. And each week in this series, we're asking the question, who is this Jesus? And it's actually, uh, right now is a great time to uh, go through one of the Gospels. Because for many people, uh, change is on the mind as the new year begins. Tallying resolutions, thinking about how life could be different this year thinking about things they'd like to see changed because they're ready for something new. And perhaps that's where you're at this morning. You too are ready for something new. And the Gospels tell the story of how God himself was ready for something new. How after thousands of years, they reveal to us how God began a new work. But this will also be his final work. Because he engages in his final mission to gather all things to himself and to eradicate Satan, sin, and death through Jesus Christ. Which means that the Gospels present the grand, top-shelf, ultimate question of your life, which is, how will you answer, who is this Jesus? And so in light of that, as you might be thinking about how life could be different this year, and all the things that you'd like to see changed, I would urge you, don't settle. Because we all want transformation. We all want to experience new life. And it's easy to think that new life can be found in a slimmer figure, spending less money, devoting yourself to having a less cluttered schedule this year. And those are all good things. But again, don't settle. Because the Gospel of Mark reminds us that God is always inviting us into his work to bring about real transformation and real life change. And that invitation does not depend upon what time of year it is or the calendar. And from the biblical perspective, the transformation that we all desire deep within our core can only be experienced to the degree that we submit our lives to Jesus and submit it to his kingship. And so, no matter where you look, you will never find an opportunity for greater fulfillment, for greater purpose, and for deeper life change than in in the invitation to lay hold of the gospel. And that's what's before us today. But, here we are. We're still at the beginning of this series and still getting situated. So I want to start off this morning by asking a question. Is your gospel big enough? Is your gospel big enough to experience and produce transformation in the first place? Is your gospel big enough to make you something new? And maybe you find that to be an odd question. Is your gospel big enough? Yet it's a very important question, and it's one that we're confronted with in this passage. Because at the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus challenges the ways that we define the Gospel too simply. He challenges the ways that we've watered it down to where we've made it less than what it actually is. We've made it something simpler, and all we have left is a simple Gospel. We have a small Gospel. And so, if I asked you right now to write down in your worship guide, if I asked, 
how would you define the gospel? What would your answer be? If I asked those in our community, how would you define the gospel? What do you think it would be? Well, as maybe you think about that in your head for a second, I think it's safe to assume that we could probably summarize and consolidate most answers into this. Jesus died for my sins and gives me eternal life. Now, of course, that is absolutely 100% true. The gospel is not less than that. But the problem is, that's not big enough. It's still too small. Look at verse 14. It says, Now after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. So here we are in Mark 1, and Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, if the gospel is simply defined as Jesus dying for our sins and giving us eternal life, then how can Jesus come proclaiming the gospel when he hasn't even died yet? Perhaps the gospel is even bigger than his dying for our sins and giving us eternal life. Perhaps the gospel is even bigger than what you or I get out of it. Let's think about it from a different angle. Let's go a little bit deeper. Perhaps you were raised with the definition of the gospel that went something like this. Jesus died for your sins, and he wipes your slate clean, but it's up to you to keep it clean. So for you, living according to the gospel has become about performance. It's making sure that your merits always outweigh your demerits. Always making sure that you do the right thing so that you will be accepted by God. But again, going back to verse 14, how can that be the definition of the gospel? When Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel of God before he ever even begins his teaching ministry, before he ever even lays out what a life that's pleasing to God actually looks like in the first place. Well, perhaps the gospel is even bigger than morality and performance and being a good person. Or maybe you were introduced to the gospel with a definition that goes something like this. Jesus died for my sins, but his greatest desire is for me to tap into supernatural power and learn what his secret will is for my life. So, living according to the gospel then becomes about pursuing an encounter with the power of God. It becomes about getting into the flow of the supernatural. But, again, how can that be the gospel? When Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel of God before he ever does a miracle or displays his divine power. Perhaps it's because the gospel is even bigger than having a religious experience. The gospel is oversimplified in all sorts of ways in our culture, quite frankly. And when we get in the rut of believing a small definition of the gospel and we claim and lay hold to a small gospel, then two things are inevitably going to happen. And the first is that we recognize very quickly that small gospels really only offer a small Jesus. And a small Jesus, in the end, doesn't really offer us that much. 
So for instance, if the gospel is just saying that Jesus died for my sins on the cross and gives me eternal life when I die, then what about life now? What does that say about my situation that I find myself in today? Where's the transformation? Where's the freedom? Where's the new life? Where's that sense of divine purpose that I feel deep in my soul on an otherwise mundane Monday morning? Or take the prosperity gospel of health and wealth and its little Jesus. It simply presents a small Jesus that really doesn't have a purpose for life beyond your own materialism. Why? Because his greatest desire is to give you whatever it is that you dream up and desire for yourself. And all you've got to do is follow the formula of name it, claim it, have enough faith. And he jumps at the opportunity to give it to you. Or take the small Jesus of liberalism who only offers a gospel of love without judgment. A gospel of acceptance without requirements. It only presents a small Jesus that only affirms whatever you want for yourself. He only affirms however you want to live. He only affirms whatever seems good to you as long as you don't hurt anybody and as long as you recycle. In the end, it's just a Jesus that's not ever going to tell you no. That makes for a bad parent. So certainly does that also not make for a bad God. And that list goes on because every small gospel offers a small Jesus, because what we believe about the gospel in the end reveals what we believe about him. And if we hold to a small gospel and we minimize who Jesus is and what he has done, then his effect in our life will be minimal at best. And perhaps we shouldn't be surprised when that is often the case. Small gospels produce a small Jesus. But the second problem is that small gospels aren't big enough to bear the weight, reality, hardship, and challenges of real life. It's not big enough to handle the challenges we face. I have never seen the movie Jaws, and I was chastised this week for having never seen the movie Jaws, and I'm okay with that, because I will never see the movie Jaws. But there's a, a scene in there that I've watched Some of you are shaking your heads in in total agreement. But there's a scene I've watched uh, that's really kind of the famous scene of the movie. It's where Jaws has been going around. There's been all sorts of reports about this shark that's terrorizing the coastline. And so Ridley, the main character, goes, rents a small fishing boat, and the captain takes him out to the water. And he goes to the back of the boat, and Ridley gets ready to bend over and dump the fish and the blood out into the water to attract the shark. And then as he bends down, Jaws rises to the surface. And then he goes back down. And you could, it, it's such a great scene, you could almost see Ridley's heart stop, or at least I'm projecting. But it's this scene where he sees it, and he backs up very slowly, in slow, you know, in slow motion, all the way back to the captain, And then he delivers this famous line, which he ad-libbed, by the way. He goes, we're going to need a bigger boat. (laughs) It's when we see the problems of life when they rise to the surface that we recognize that we need a bigger gospel. The problem is, when life gets hard and life gets challenging, that's when you realize you need a bigger boat. You need a bigger gospel that isn't swallowed up 
by the challenges and brokenness of this world. You know, that's one of the challenges that people have to face when they go to India. Why? Because here, the world's problems are this big. And the gospel is a little bit bigger, able to handle those problems. And so we take that gospel, and then we go to a place like India, where the problems are not this big, it's the size of this room. And so now you've got to figure out either those problems are bigger than my gospel, or I have to understand in a new way how this gospel is bigger than all of these problems. It's one of the great challenges of missions, is recognizing that the brokenness and systemic oppression of this world is bigger than we could possibly imagine, which either puts us in the direction of going another way or laying hold of a bigger gospel that has everything to say about sin and brokenness. And there is no challenge that can overcome it. And the truth is, if we want to be a church that's effective in the world, we need a bigger gospel that can speak to that. We need a bigger gospel that can speak to broken marriages, to addictions, to lost jobs, tragedies, cancer diagnoses, and heartbreak. We need a bigger gospel that would give us the boldness to go in and face the giants of the Kaligat and not blink. We need a bigger gospel that would compel us to move into our community to push back against the strongholds of sin and darkness that are absolutely 100% there. And Jesus offers all of that to us, to be a people that lay hold of the gospel in its fullness, not not in, in its simplicity. But to do that, we have to begin where he begins. We have to start where he starts. And he starts in verse 15. And he says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus comes proclaiming the good news, the gospel that the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God has now broken into this world, which means that his rule, his reign, and his authority will now fill the earth. And it's a kingdom that knows no end, And it's a kingdom with a completely different value system than the values of this world. And by virtue of the fact that Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel of a kingdom implies that a new kind of authority, a new kind of power, a new kind of citizenship, a new kind of agenda will now be imposed on all creation. Because it's a kingdom through which God will subject all things under his feet. And through it, his glory will fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. And Jesus can proclaim that with authority, that the kingdom of God has come. Why? Because he's the king. Because the king has finally come and brought his kingdom with him. And this king is like no other. To whom could you possibly compare this king? He's not a king that bends to every whim and fancy of his people. He is not a king that provides us with a suggestion box. Daniel says that he removes kings and sets up kings like pawns on a chessboard. Nebuchadnezzar said that he does what he wants, when he wants, with the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth, and nobody could possibly say to him, what have you done? Isaiah said that before him all of the nations of the earth are counted as worthless and less than nothing, and they are simply like dust on the pan of a scale. 
And John tells us that when this king returns, all the nations of the earth will mourn and wail at the sight of him. And all of that power, all of that authority are embodied in this king, which really begs the question, does he sound like someone that would be satisfied being treated like a consultant? Does this king sound like someone that would be satisfied being treated as a life coach or a therapist or one that's desperate to bless us with what we want? The greatest question of our life is how will you answer who is this Jesus? Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom invites us to shed any simplistic notions of the gospel and to lay hold of a bigger gospel and see ourselves wrapped up in his kingdom agenda. Because the problems always happen when we try to wrap him up in ours. And it's in Mark that he invites us to lay hold of a bigger gospel and to lay hold of a bigger Jesus. But it's in the rest of this passage that we have to move forward and begin to ask What does this king and his kingdom look like? And we start to get a picture in the remaining section of this passage. Because in verses 16 to 20, we see the king call his first disciples. He's walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Simon and Andrew. He sees James and John. He sees four fishermen going about their day like it is any other ordinary day. But the king walks up to them and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He invites them into a whole new purpose, a whole new agenda, a whole new life. He says, come and follow me and I will make you something altogether new. And these disciples respond by getting out of their little fishing boats and they get into one that's far bigger. But, What's actually, what's actually happening here? What's going on as he calls his disciples? Because we're so familiar with this, right? We know this call that he gives to the disciples, follow me. But what's the significance? Well, part of it takes us to the Old Testament, where we see how God's people were represented by 12 tribes that were, that were uh, named after the 12 sons of Jacob. Benjamin, Asher, Judah, and so on. And so here, as the king begins to call his first disciples, as he steps in to his mission, what's he doing? He's forming a new Israel. He's forming a new people of God that are now centered around this king and the work that he came to do. But if we go a step further, what else do we see? Well, This king is inviting the first citizens into his kingdom. And this invitation into his kingdom comes in the form of discipleship. Come and follow after me, and I'll make you something new. But at the same time, we're familiar with this. And we need to recognize how radical this was for Jesus to say, come and follow after me despite the fact that it's so familiar to us. Because calling the disciples to follow after him was radical even in their time and in their place. Because we actually have no historical record where a Jewish rabbi would go 
and asked their disciples to follow after them. In fact, it was the complete opposite. The disciples or the students would choose which rabbi they wanted to follow. And so they would subscribe to their teaching and to their interpretation and to their views. And so these disciples would sit in their lectures. They'd follow them on Instagram. They'd follow them on Twitter. They'd keep up with the latest emails and have their daily devotionals in their inbox every morning. But they didn't follow their manner and their pattern and their way of life. And the truth about this king is that you do not find him. This king finds you. And he invites you to come and follow after him. But the truth is, is that Jesus' call to follow after him is radical in their time and their day, but it's also radical even in biblical terms. Because where you see this happen in the Old Testament, it isn't nearly this urgent. And we will see time and again moving forward in the Gospel of Mark that there's an urgency to discipleship. And part of the fact is that we, we forget that part, and so often we highlight and want to focus on Jesus' patience. We want to highlight his long-suffering, his grace, his mercy for us. And sometimes that becomes an excuse for us to not do anything in getting up and following after him. And we need to be reminded of the urgency of discipleship. Think about Elisha when he goes and he finds Elisha. And he says, come, follow me. And Elisha says, hang on, let me go say bye to my family. Elisha says, great, I'll sit here and rest for a while. Go take care of your business. But then you get to Jesus and you see a different kind of urgency. You see Jesus, when the rich young ruler comes to him and says, I want to follow you, fine, sell everything you have and come follow me. Get rid of all that, come and follow me. And then you see a man come up to him and say, Jesus, I want to follow you, but let me go bury my father. Jesus says, no. Let the dead bury their dead. Why is it so urgent? Because, brother, you don't have the time. You do not have the time to wait. You don't have the time to wait on God sending something else later on. The king is before you now, this day. Will you come and will you follow after him? Will you come and walk alongside him and allow his life to shape your life? Which means that we have to recognize that discipleship is far more than simply professing who Jesus is. It's more than recognizing his authority and marveling at it. I mean, quite frankly, that's the, that's the easy part. And we know there must be more to it because of our next section in verses 21 to 28. The king begins teaching in the synagogues. And as he's teaching, there's a demon-possessed man that walks in, a man with an unclean spirit, and he interrupts him right as he's in the middle of his teaching, and he cries out, Who are you? What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And with but a simple command, the king tells him to be quiet and to come out of him, and he delivers this man, and he is freed from his bondage. Now, discipleship has to be more than recognizing who Jesus is and marveling at his authority because we see right there that even the demons can do that. 
Time and time again, we see in the Gospels that the demons recognize exactly who he is immediately when they see him. As soon as he walks over the hill, they know exactly who this king is. And so what's the difference between a demon and a disciple? It's following. It's recognizing who he is, yes. But then it's bringing all of your life to follow after him. And so if the invitation into this kingdom comes in the form of discipleship, then being a disciple is about bringing the kingship of Jesus into every area, every corner, and every aspect of your life. And so yes, you are married. But are you a disciple in your marriage? Yes, you are a parent. But are you a disciple in your parenting? It's not discipleship to profess Jesus on the one hand and then live how we want on the other. It's not enough to profess Jesus and then treat certain aspects of our lives as though they are off limits to his authority and to his rule because he, in the end, he's either the king over all things or else we run the risk of treating him like he's a consultant on speed dial. The call to follow is about bringing every aspect of life in line with his agenda and his kingdom purposes. And there is urgency to that because he is king and the king has come. But it's costly, is it not? We learn discipleship right here from the very beginning is costly. We learn at the very start of the gospel that entrance into this kingdom is going to cost you something because it requires that you have to leave something behind. Just look at the disciples. They left behind their jobs. They left behind their families. Some left behind their wealth and stability. Some had to leave behind their politics and their agendas. And as the story goes on, some had to leave behind their security, their physical welfare, Some would eventually leave behind their homeland and they would never return again. Each of them had to leave something behind here in this passage, but also over and over and over again. Because discipleship requires that we leave behind something old if you want to become something new. And so this morning, where are you at? Perhaps your discipleship has run cold. And you're ready for something new. And in that, might we make a bit of a confession that oftentimes it runs cold because we aren't willing to let things go. Oftentimes, we want Jesus, yet we aren't really willing to change anything. We want Jesus, but we want to continue to do things our way. It's easy to want a discipleship on clearance that doesn't cost you all that much. And yet this story reminds us that when there's no longer a willingness to sacrifice, then there's no longer discipleship. Because our agendas and the king's agendas do not mix. And the king calls you to follow him this morning. But what do you need to leave behind in order to do so? Maybe for some of you it's old behavior patterns that you need to leave behind for the sake of your marriage because they're not working anymore. Maybe for others, it's a willingness to leave your family behind and take 10 days and follow the king to India. Maybe it's leaving behind the remote control or your phone 
or your work and following Jesus into prayer and solitude. Maybe it's your pride, anxiety, or fear so that you can follow him into deeper community with others and be willing to take risks. Or maybe it's your desire for control over everything and everybody so that you feel safe. And perhaps the king would invite you to follow him into the unknown and to trust him. But just like the disciples know that this king does not ask you to sacrifice those things because he's cruel, he asks you to leave those things behind so that he can make you something new. But are you willing to get out of that little boat and into a bigger one? Let's pray.